Amen. What a good turnout tonight. Okay, we're in trouble with notes. Uh, we, uh, we were planning on the normal crowd, and we've got some new folks here tonight. So we might have to have you share these notes for tonight, and we'll make sure that you get more next week, not only of next week, but this week as well. Uh, and here's why I decided to do notes, because uh, it's going to help keep me on track, okay? Uh, conquering the book of Luke and giving it any kind of, of uh, value to what Luke says uh, and only taking it a, or taking a chapter a week is a tough assignment. So that's why I want to keep us on track and that's why each week I will be giving you an outline, my outline of each chapter. So by the end of the uh, Gospel of Luke, our study, you should have a nice, uh, not only outline, but a sort of a set of notes that if you want to take notes on there as well. Uh, also say this, because we have some new folks here, uh, not just to our Tuesday night Bible study, but new folks to our church who have not been probably here at the Oasis for much more than a month, some of them, make sure after Bible study, if you get a chance to get up and introduce yourself and hang out and fellowship. One of the great things I like about the Oasis is after Sundays and Tuesdays, man, people are hanging out and talking for long times, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. All right, so the Gospel of Luke. Uh, some people may, uh, I'm just going to share with you, why did I choose the Gospel of Luke? There's four Gospels. I could have chosen any one of the four. I'll, I'll give you the reasons why. First reason why is a very selfish reason. It's my favorite Gospel, okay? Out of all four, it's just, it's my favorite. Secondly, though, the, the second reason I chose the book of Luke is I really feel led of the Lord to do a series in the book of Acts, and so obviously Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So I think it's going to be a great transition to, to get into a great study of Luke and then dive into the sort of uh, book two, if you will, of that, which is the book of Acts we're going to be doing after our study of Luke. The third reason, though, is this. Even though there are four Gospels, Luke is the most, by far, unique Gospel of the four. Over 50% of Luke's material is unique to him. It is not found in Matthew, Mark, or John. Over 50%. So it's a very unique gospel, and I think we're going to be bringing that out through our study of the gospel. In fact, you'll notice there on your notes and in the first four verses that even the introduction, if you will, is much different than the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or John. Because in this introduction, Luke is reminding us that this, this great letter, this great Gospel, good news about Jesus Christ that we have here to study on, was actually just a personal sort of compilation of the life of Christ that was intended just for one person, whose name was Theophilus. So think about that. What you and I are studying, what, what God inspired, what has been included in the canon of Scripture, was actually only supposed to be a one-on-one -on -one ministry from Dr. Luke to his friend Theophilus. It reminds us that you and I are just supposed to do what God is calling us to do. And sometimes in our minds, well, this is just a one-on-one -on -one thing. This isn't for a bigger audience. But that's something we've got to let up to God. We let God define how big 
the ministry gets, if you will, the, 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 the impact that it makes. That's why uh, one of my mentors told me years ago, Jeff, you take care of the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth. And, and that's exactly what we see here with Luke. Luke had no intention of this book ever going worldwide and having the exposure it did. His only intention was, I want to compile something that's going to encourage my friend Theophilus. And notice that it's a, it's a message of assurance. In fact, in verse 4, I want to skip down there. The reason he is writing this gospel is so his friend Theophilus may know. The word know means to become thoroughly acquainted with for certain the things you were taught. The word certain there means suited to confirm, bringing about stability and assurance. Luke says the whole reason I'm writing this to you is just to sort of keep putting those nails in your life that's, that's going to just keep fastening your faith stronger and stronger into your being. That you're going to just be more certain, more confident, more sure about this man, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. And so we see here how important assurance is. Even though Theophilus was probably a pretty strong believer, none of us are ever not in need of confirmation and assurance and, and things becoming a little bit more clear and certain. And that's the whole reason for this gospel of Luke. Notice a couple of things that make it also, uh, you know, a word of assurance. I put there in the notes. First of all, Luke tells us about the multiple accounts. Notice he says, now many have undertaken to complete an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, like the accounts passed on to us. So Luke is saying, look, I'm not the only guy that ever sat down and tried to compile a life of Christ. I'm not the only guy after Jesus ascended to heaven who felt led either by the Holy Spirit or just on their own who wanted to, to write down what God had done from the time that Jesus was born all the way through his ministry, all the way until his death on the cross and his resurrection. So the reason that's assurance to us is that the multiple accounts, the more accounts that we have, we can compare accounts to accounts and we can actually it becomes more credible. It's one of the reasons, like when people are in, when we're in debates about, well, how do you know the New Testament or the Old Testament is credible? How do we know it can be believed? One of the reasons why is because of the multiple transcripts. There are thousands of New Testament transcripts that can be compared to each other. There are thousands of Old Testament transcripts. Back in 47, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and they only confirmed what the Bible had already, you know, said. So multiple accounts, the more, in a sense, witnesses you have, the more you can compare one to the other and realize, to, for the most part, they may disagree on minor things, but they're all agreeing on the major things. That only makes the argument stronger. That only makes the, the witness, the testimony stronger, if you will. And then notice that Luke also tells Theophilus about the eyewitness testimony when he says, listen, these things were passed on to us, verse 2, by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Notice from the very beginning. In other words, what we got here, what I received, I got from the very eyewitnesses all the way back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. That's how firsthand it is. That's how credible it is. This wasn't like 
three or four generations down, this was very soon after Jesus left the earth and soon enough to where the eyewitnesses of all that happened could actually be interviewed. Then also notice something that Luke talks about, how diligent he was in compiling it all. Notice he says there in verse 3, it seemed good to me as well because I have followed all things carefully. The words followed all things carefully mean to investigate, to examine carefully, to diligently go through all the material from the beginning to write an orderly account. So not only was Luke wanting to make sure that what he shared was was the reality, it was truth, but he wanted to do it in an orderly way that would make sense and resonate with his friend Theophilus. So then he says, I did this to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know for certain the things you were taught. God always wants to give us confirmation and assurance, bringing more stability. One more thing, we'll move on. Notice in the first four verses, though, something very important. God calls us to faith in the facts. When we talk about faith in our Christian lives, it it should never be a concept that God is calling us to just blind faith. You just believe, but I'm never going to give you anything concrete to believe in. That's not God. Throughout the scriptures, God always calls human beings to faith, but he always calls us to faith in facts. And that's exactly what Luke is saying here. These things really happened. There were eyewitness testimony here. So God isn't saying, well, I just, you know, you weren't here, but I just expect you to, no, eyewitness testimony, multiple accounts. Even Luke himself made sure that he checked it out and verified and investigated it carefully. All of this should give us great assurance. This is why Jesus took the time even after he resurrected, to make sure that for many days he showed himself alive. Why? To prove, to give assurance, to give confirmation. Because it wasn't going to be one of these deals where the tomb is empty and God, you know, goes, hey, he really did rise from the dead even though nobody saw him. You just got to believe. No, God never did that, did he? Jesus Christ himself in bodily form said to the guys, here I am, believe in me. And so he gave them facts. He gave them reality to place their faith in. And that's what God does in our lives. Right now, if God's asking you to believe in him, he's asking you to believe in him and trust in him and rely on him and have confidence in him in the facts of what he's already done in history, in your own life, in the promises that he's already given that have been fulfilled God isn't asking you to blindly trust him. He's saying, trust me because you know you can trust me. Trust me because you know I can be relied upon because everything that I've ever said would come true has come true. I've given you enough evidence and proof to believe. That's why the beginning of the book of Acts, later on when we study that, Luke tells Theophilus, hey, God gave us many infallible proofs. Luke, or Acts chapter 1. So, we've got to move on. Luke is a message of assurance. Look beginning in verse 5. It was also an end to the silence. One of the things we have to remember when we come to any study of the Gospels, whether it's Mac, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is that 
After the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, God had been silent for 400 years. That's huge. He had not spoken for 400 years. Why was God silent? Because his people weren't listening. And going back to what we said Sunday, God is not going to lead a people if they're not interested in his lead. If they really don't care about what God says and what direction God wants to take, then he just doesn't waste his time. That's why God even told his followers, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Yeah, you've got the gospel. You've got good news. It's got power to change lives. But if people don't want to hear it, then go to somebody who does. And so for 400 years, God kept quiet. But now, God was beginning to break into that silence suddenly, unexpectedly. And we see what's happening here. First of all, we see that we're introduced to, in verse 5, a priest by the name of Zechariah. His name name means God remembers. And if you read verses 5 through verse 17, you'll see where we're reminded about God's covenant. And the fact that God kept his covenant and remembered his people. And even though he had been silent for 400 years, he was never going to forget that there was a remnant of believers in him in Israel, always has, always will be, and that he would return and begin to reveal himself to them again. How long would the Jews for 400 years think, maybe God has forgotten That's a long time. We do the same thing, don't we? For a much shorter time than 400 years, could we be dead by then? But how many times in our life do we think, God's forgotten me. He doesn't remember me anymore. No, God never forgets. He always remembers. And especially in this context, he remembers his covenant. He remembers his promises. It's something that we can always count on. But notice in verse five, this all happened when God broke into history once again, during the reign of Herod, king of Judea. We don't have time tonight to go into all this, but Herod was just awful. He was wicked. There was such darkness in Israel at this time. And it reminds us when God sometimes sends revival, it's in the darkest of days. That's exactly where Israel was. Israel was living in spiritual darkness under a wicked king named Herod. The the same guy that wiped out all the children in Bethlehem when he thought that there would be a threat to him. Good guy, right? This was the kind of darkness that they were living in. But it was in this darkness when maybe many in Israel were discouraged that suddenly, unexpectedly, God broke through. And he broke through to a couple named Zacharias and Elizabeth. To anyone living outside of their little hometown, they wouldn't have even been known. But God notices all of us. And so notice, during the reign of Herod the king, there lived a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division. He and his wife, Elizabeth, they were descendants of Aaron. They were both righteous. This simply means they were spiritually devoted in the sight of God, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blamelessly. Again, blameless doesn't mean sinless. It simply means that they gained public respect because of their moral character. They did not have a child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both very old. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the holy place of the Lord and burn incense. I don't want to pass by this because this is so special when God chose to speak to Zechariah. 
a priest like Zechariah would have to go to Jerusalem twice a year. Uh, and they would have like a week of, of ministry actually at the temple. And then only once in a priest's lifetime, only once in a lifetime opportunity, would they actually get to go in to the holy place and burn incense. Most of the time, that was reserved for the high priest. But once in a lifetime, every priest, by lot, would get the opportunity. So you can imagine, this, as far as Zechariah personally was concerned, was the high point of his life. This was the most important point of his life. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into that holy place and burn incense. Burning incense was a picture of the prayers that were offered by God's people to God. And so he goes in, verse 10. The whole crowd of people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering, and then the angel of the Lord stands on the right side of the altar of incense and appears to him. Zechariah, visibly shaken when he saw the angel, was seized with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. You'll notice there in the notes, this is a response to prayer. The angel coming and talking to Zechariah, God breaking into history once again after 400 years of silence, was a response to his prayers. Don't discount your prayer life, my friends. You may have prayed for something or someone for a long time. Don't give up. God remembers. He never forgets. He's faithful to His covenant. He's faithful to His promises. God responds to people who pray and pray in faith. Now, some automatically think because of the information we've already been given that Zechariah's prayer was a prayer for a child. I don't believe that at all. Because I think we're going to see... Zechariah doesn't even believe when the angel tells him he's going to have a child. He's going to, I think he's given up hope at this point, praying for a child. Well, then what's the angel coming to respond to his prayer for? I think Zechariah, we're going to see later on, was clearly praying for the Messiah. He was clearly praying for God to come. He was clearly praying for God's kingdom to come. He was clearly praying for God to break in to history once again and speak to his people. He was praying for revival. And it was because of that prayer that God sent all this in motion. Because it was going to be through the birth of their son, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that actually God was going to start the whole process of the Messiah coming because John the Baptist was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. You'll notice he says in verse 13, you're going to bear a son you're, and you're going to call his name John. Again, I have there in the notes, John, great name, means Jehovah is a gracious giver. God wasn't breaking into history, wasn't tapping Zechariah and Elizabeth, wasn't granting them a son because they deserved it, because they were worthy. Just like all of us, it was a gift of God's grace that he was doing this. And notice that God is the one that is initiating this. He's responding to prayer, but he's the one that took the initiative to break in and said, okay, time to speak to my people once again. And I'm going to start speaking through all of these births coming on and these babies being born. He goes on to describe who John's going to be. I don't want to take too much time there. We've got too much to get to tonight. But notice at the end of verse 17 that John's ministry is going to be one of making the people of God ready for the Lord. That's important. John's ministry was a ministry and mission of preparation. 
When you study the life of John the Baptist, and we're going to do that in a couple weeks in Luke chapter 3, we see how important preparation is to God. Could Jesus have come without John the Baptist? Sure, he could have. But the way God does things, God understands there needs to be groundwork laid in order to get optimal response from anyone. And so John was sent by God and set aside by God so that his whole life could be spent helping the people of God prepare so that when Jesus, the Messiah, did come, they would be really ready. There would be an optimal response to Jesus Christ. So that principle tells us that God wants to do the same thing in our lives today. He wants to spend a lot of time preparing us. That's why I'm challenged even every week that before I even come on Tuesday or Sunday, that I have taken the time to prepare my heart and my mind to receive what God has so that God can really speak to me. And so that whatever God wants to do in my life, I can get the most out of it because I haven't just come in and tried to switch a, a flip a switch on and say, okay, God, I'm engaged now. I haven't been engaged with you all week. Haven't spent any time with you all week, but now I'm going to engage with you. Here we go. And I'm not saying that Christians like that can't get anything, but the Christians who have come prepared will get a lot more. Because God is all about preparation. Let's even take it this way. God right now is preparing you and I for what's to come. He's always preparing us. Always. We are always in a mode of preparation when it comes with God. What is he preparing us for? That's why we just need to be faithful to what he's called us to now. Because it will be preparation for what's down the road. All right. Let's get to lessons from Zechariah, beginning in verse 18. Notice that Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, How can I be sure of this? I put there in the notes, what was missing in Zechariah's ministry? Here's a priest. Here's a guy we know from earlier verses has spent a lifetime in ministry. And yet his faith was weak. What was missing? an everyday practice of faith. If we are not practicing believing in God and practicing faith and having our faith stretched periodically, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, then it's going to be very hard for us when we are called to believe in something that God's going to do that's great and, and that may, it's going to be really hard for us to really jump on board and believe in it because we haven't practiced our faith on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. I think that's what was missing here. And it reminds us how, they, you know, we can go through the, the motions of ministry. We can be involved in ministry. We can be involved in full-time ministry like a priest. And yet if I'm really not practicing my faith, if I'm really not relying on God, then when it's really time for my faith to be engaged, it's going to be hard because faith is something that has to be exercised all the time. So that just reminded me, am I really trusting and relying in God in my life right now for something or, or am I just again on that automatic pilot type of thing? 
And then notice, faith focuses on God. Because notice what Zechariah says. Zechariah said to the angel, How can this be? For I'm an old man and my wife is old as well. I'm sure she loved that. The point is though, and we're, we're the same way, that's the lesson here. Faith doesn't focus on us. That's where Zechariah, even the priest, made the mistake. Faith doesn't focus. If, if God says, I want to do this through you, like a lot of Bible characters, we're the same way. It's like, we start to look at us. And we start to see all the deficiencies and frailty and lack, I'm lacking this. Like, you know, you saw the, you remember the stories in the Bible? Moses, well, God, I can't do that because I'm this and I'm not this. Jeremiah, well, yeah. So God, when he calls us to faith, faith focuses on God. Faith doesn't focus on the circumstances, the obstacles in the way, doesn't focus on our insufficiency or lack of adequacy. It focuses on God so that when God comes to us and asks us to believe in him and trust in him and do something for him, our faith is focused on him. And we go, God, you're such a big God. If that's what you want, then let's do it. That's faith. And then the consequences of unbelief we see in the rest of this part here. I love Gabriel, verse 19. The angel answers, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, man, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Don't you know who I am? And then Gabriel goes on to basically rebuke Zechariah and says, because you did not believe my words, verse 20, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day these things take place. The most important day in Zechariah's life He's going to come out of the holy place. Everyone's going to be there. Crowds are around. They can't wait to hear about his experience. And he's not going to be able to tell anybody. How frustrating would that be? That'd be like the guy that goes out and hits a hole in one. He's got nobody to tell, you know. It's like, oh my goodness, this great thing happened to me. And there's nobody around. To say, or I. That was Zechariah. Put yourself in a, the most important day in his life, and now he can't talk because there are consequences always to unbelief. Some more drastic than others. But every time you and I choose to not trust God and trust in ourselves or something else or someone else, there's always consequences to unbelief. And Zechariah learns that the hard way. So obviously, verse 24, after some time his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, Five months, she kept herself in seclusion. She says, this is what the Lord has done for me at the time when he's been, again, gracious to me to take away my disgrace among people. Let's move on then to verse 26 and get to some lessons from Mary. Some great lessons from Mary. First of all, notice in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. A descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary. I put there in the notes, no one lives in obscurity, folks. No one could have been more under the radar, humanly speaking, than this young little girl from an obscure place called Nazareth who's really, really young, never even had probably a chance to do you know, anything big in her life up to this point. But God has seen her all along. God has seen her heart. God has... No one is obscure with God. God sees it all. And God looked into that girl's heart, and he's the one 
He chose her then to be the one to carry the Messiah in her womb. Also notice that Mary is a proof of God's grace. As we move on, the angel, verse 28, came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The the words favored one means surrounded with grace. Notice on into verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The proof or evidence of God's grace. In other words, the angel Gabriel is saying, Even by God choosing you, Mary, to carry the Messiah in your womb, that is a proof or evidence of God's grace. There is nowhere in Scripture where the Scripture paints this picture of Mary as being somebody that God, you know, that she deserved this and was worthy of this. No. The Scriptures paint that Mary, as faithful, I'm sure, as she was as a young woman, it was still God's grace that granted her the privilege to be able to carry the Messiah in her womb. Notice, this son that she would bear was born to be king. Gabriel goes on to describe him in verse 32. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Jesus, born to be king. How is this all going to take place? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like God works in our lives today. She says in verse 34, how will this be since I've not had sexual relations with the man? Now her question is not the same as Zechariah. Her question is simply not about the fact that it couldn't happen. Her question is more about, well, logistics. How's that possible? You know. So it's a different kind of question. And so Gabriel says, here's how it will happen. Verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The words come upon in the Greek mean to literally overtake and operate within. And the power of the Most High will overshadow. The word overshadow in the Greek means to envelop, to encircle you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. It's all going to happen through the power of the Spirit. Folks, there's a great lesson. When, When... we do anything, when God calls us to do something, we should always strive to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in our power, not in our strength. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice, unlike Zechariah, because she didn't ask for a confirmation from God, God gave her a confirmation anyway when he says through Gabriel in verse 36, and look, your relative Elizabeth has also become pregnant with the son in her old age. Although she was called barren, she is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel gave Mary that information as an assurance, as a confirmation that God is working miracles. God is a God of miracles. God can make this happen, Mary. God made this happen in your cousin Elizabeth's life. God can make this happen in your life. Just believe. Just keep trusting in God. Notice Mary's humble response then in verse 38. Mary said, yes, I am a servant of the Lord. By the way, the word servant there, the lowest form of a slave that Mary could use in that language. It literally means one who is devoted to someone else with disregard for their own interests. Mary says, I am your servant. Let this happen to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
One thing I want to insert here too, let's remember something. When it comes to serving the Lord and offering ourselves to serve the Lord, that doesn't always mean it's going to be easy, does it? Because think about some of the things that Mary had to go through. Great privilege to be the mother of the Messiah. But think about the pain that she endured. And I'm not talking, gals, about the physical pain. Think about the wagging tongues in Nazareth whenever her and Joseph would say, oh, but it's not, it's from the Holy Spirit. We, we never really got together. Yeah, right. Nobody believed that, right? And then even the, 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 the call that God placed on her that in her ninth month of pregnancy, she had to get to Bethlehem because that's what the prophecy said. So nine months pregnant, she has to hop on the back of a donkey and travel miles from Nazareth down to Bethlehem when she's probably miserable. So when she says, I'm your slave, God, whatever you want from my life, we always have to remember, do we really mean that? Because sometimes God's going to call us in being a servant to him to do some very hard, tough things. It's not always easy to serve the Lord. But that's part of laying our life out there and saying, God, my life is for you. However I can bring you glory and honor, that's what I'll do. And that's exactly what Mary did. And then I just want to touch real quickly, too, on how Mary knew God. We're not going to take the time. I hope you will this week. But when you go over to verse 46 through verse 55 and you read Mary's praise to God, it is an unbelievable passage of Scripture. There is a lot of unbelievable theology that Mary places in this hymn of praise. And the reason why that stands out is here's a young gal. She's probably 12, 13, maybe at the most. And yet this hymn of praise shows how much she knew her God at a very young age. And how did she have that knowledge of God? Through the scriptures. As young as she was, what this hymn shows is that this gal spent a lot of time reading the Old Testament scriptures. Because if you read this, you will see all the references that she makes to Old Testament scriptures in this hymn. She knew her Bible, let's say it that way. And what a challenge to us to get into the scriptures and to know our God through what he's revealed. Because that's the most important thing. It's not knowing the Bible, it's knowing the God of the Bible. And that's what we see here. Mary had a handle on her God, which may be one of the reasons why she was able to trust that God to do what he did. Because she really had an intimate knowledge of him through the scriptures. One final section tonight. I'm going to get through this. The birth of John. Quickly, verse 57. Notice his uniqueness. In verse 57, a time came for Elizabeth to have her baby. She gave birth. Her neighbors and relatives were there. And everybody's thinking, you're going to name him Zechariah Jr., right? Because that's what you do in those days. And, and, and you're going to name him Zechariah Jr. because he's going to follow in his daddy's footsteps and be a priest. Because, again, that's just what was expected in those days, right? And Elizabeth says, no, his name is going to be John. And they're like, John? Because God had a unique ministry for John. John wasn't going to follow in his dad's footsteps. John was going to be unique and was going to be his own person. 
And it just reminds us God created us all to be unique, and not that there's anything wrong with, say, following in your family's family business or doing that or anything like that, but make sure you never lose being who God created you to be. John was certainly unique. Also, we see here in this passage the God of second chances. Because later on in verse 63, uh, when, when everyone was saying and, and making a big deal about his name, uh, Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, verse 63, his name is John. He finally, you know, and immediately Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue released and he spoke, blessing God. And you'll see there beginning then in verse 68, a sort of a praise from Zechariah. God allowed Zechariah a second chance to praise him, to worship him, to serve him, to be a priest once again, to go through the sacred duties. I know not all of us get into maybe singing and worship like Nicole, but we never will, okay? That's not what God expects. But I don't know about you, but I think I would appreciate coming and being able to sing praises to God more on Tuesday and Sunday if I wasn't able to speak for a while. Because maybe part of it is I, I take for granted that I have the ability to praise the Lord. And what if that ability was taken away? I'm sure Zechariah really appreciated the fact that once again he got his voice back and he was able to praise and sing to the Lord God is a God of second chances. He's a gracious, forgiving God. Notice, though, in this praise, man's desperate need. Zechariah says in verse 68, Blessed be the God of Israel because he's come to the help of his people and has redeemed his people. I don't want to take the time because we're running out of time, but if you read this, you see where Zechariah paints, again, a very bleak picture of where the people of God are. They're in darkness. Yeah, the world's in darkness and Herod is a dark leader and and all of these things are going on in the world. Hmm. They remind us of our time, right? Darkness, a lot of people discouraged. Even the people of God are discouraged. What is God going to do? But many times it's when we come to a time of desperate need and we, in a sense, humble ourselves before God and recognize how much we need God. That's when God really begins to work. And notice something else here. I thought this was important. When God does save and deliver us and rescue us, no matter whether it's our salvation or he's delivering us from, from addiction or whatever habit we may have or destructive you know, thing that we're doing, we are saved to serve. Notice what Zechariah says in verse 74. That we being rescued from the hand of our enemies may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him as long as we live. When God delivers a people, when he rescues us, when he saves us, we are saved to serve. We're not saved to sit. We're not saved to just, you know, sit on the sidelines and be a spectator. When God delivers us, he wants us to use our lives in service for him. And then finally, we see here at the end, verse 80, how important it is to get alone with God. The child, John the Baptist, kept growing, becoming strong in spirit. By the way, in the Greek, that literally means the mighty power of God. And he was in the wilderness, a secluded place, until the day he was revealed or placed on public display by God. John spent a lot of time alone with God. Jesus, 
during his ministry, spent a lot of time alone with his father. God wants us to see the importance that before we do anything publicly, there's got to be that behind-the-scenes communion and fellowship that we have with God that fuels it all, that makes it all possible. Are we getting alone with God? That is so important. It's modeled by John. It's modeled by Jesus. It's modeled throughout the New Testament. The importance of getting alone with God. A lot of stuff going on in chapter 1, right? Guess what? Next week we're going to talk about Christmas. Because Christmas is only about 120 days away anyway, right? So next week we come to Luke chapter 2, the great Christmas story. I think we're going to be sharing some insights that maybe... Even in that very familiar story, maybe you haven't seen before. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much that this man, Luke, felt impressed to give his friend such a detailed account of the life and historical background of the Messiah, Jesus, coming into the world. And how, Lord, thousands, millions have benefited for the last couple of thousand years since this book was even placed into the Bible from its contents. It is the living Word of God. You have breathed, God, every word into this book. Every word is important. And God, we just took a summary view of it tonight. But it is always my hope and prayer that as we dive in corporately to the Word of God, that it will just inspire these folks to dive in a little bit deeper on their own and go back and reread what we've looked at tonight and meditate on it. And as we've challenged ourselves to digest it, to apply it how God wants us to apply it, to really absorb it and not just let it pass through our system and move on to something else. Because I truly believe, God, that in this great chapter, Luke chapter 1, there's at least one thing for each of us in this room, that you really want us to grasp right now in our life. You really want us to digest. You really want us to absorb. There's got to be one thing we've talked about tonight or one thing the Holy Spirit has revealed that you want us to focus on. So God, help us to do that. We thank you for changing our lives and for growing us like you are. We thank you for the exciting things that are happening. And we just pray, God, that we would be a people prepared and preparing ourselves for you to bring revival and to do great things in our midst. To be a people like Mary who had the faith to trust in you that with you nothing is impossible. That it's not about us and our limitations and our frailty and our inadequacy. It's about you and what you want to do. And so God, help our church and help us individually to never define ourselves or allow others to define us but help us lord to look to you to be the one and only one who defines our life and what it looks like go with us from this place lord give us opportunities to talk to others about you about your word about the spiritual growth that's taking place in our lives help us lord to be enthusiastic and excited about you and what you're doing so that lord we can be a light and salt and a magnet to other people who so desperately need to connect with you in a deeper way and god will give you the praise for it in jesus name
Amen. Folks, we'll see you Sunday. Thanks for being here.